Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. An estimated 45 million Americans go on a diet each year, according to the Boston Medical Center. But many of those diets aren't successful. That's why we're excited to talk with our guest on this episode, clinical psychologist, Dr. Gary Foster. Dr. Foster is an obesity researcher and behavior change expert. He's the chief scientific officer at Weight Watchers and the best-selling author of The Shift. Seven Powerful Mindset Changes for Lasting Weight Loss. Dr. Foster, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, I've been helping people uh, on their weight loss journeys for nearly 30 years and done, done so in a variety of different contexts, individual, small groups, large groups. And then uh, for the last 10 years or so at Weight Watchers. And what had occurred to me honestly, slowly over time, was that the people who were the most successful, surprisingly, weren't people who ate exactly according to plan or lost weight every week or never missed their gym workout. The people who were most successful in the long term were people who had changed their mindset, the way they thought about themselves and the way they thought about the journey. So that was the principal reason for writing it. And also, I felt that, you know, after all these years, who needs another diet book? Who needs, you know, eat this, don't eat that? Certainly eating is important, but what's in your head is just as important than what's on your plate. What are the most unhelpful thoughts that you hear about weight loss and how can we reframe them? Uh, there's so many, uh, unfortunately. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I think uh, I think one that comes to mind is that big goals, uh, these big, hairy, audacious goals are really critical. And while long-term goals, like I want to run a 5K or I run a, want to run a half marathon or I want to lose 50 pounds are you know, motivating to some degree and they set a North Star, uh, what's really most successful is to break that long-term goal into many short mini goals. And the reason for that is if you set a long-term goal um, in terms of changing your eating or your activity or your weight, and that's the only thing, you won't get any sense of satisfaction or reinforcement or joy or pride until you've hit that long-term goal. And that could take months or years, where instead if you say what I'm going to do today is instead of having potato chips at three o'clock, I'm going to have a banana. At 3.01, when you've done that, you've built a success. It's a thing to celebrate. And that's what gives fuel for the journey. So one thing that's really important is don't get bogged down in those big, it has to be this audacious goal. Think about what do you want to do today? What's one small thing you can change? I think another thing that, that bogs people down is the way they think around success. And that there's a characteristic thinking style called all or none or light bulb thinking um, that really gets in the way for people. So they misinterpret normal events like having a setback, uh, being a human being and not being perfect. Um, and they misinterpret that as the, the thoughts that they typically say are, I've blown it, I'm right back where I started. That's not at all the case. I've worked with many people who are successful, lost 
40, 50, 60 pounds, they have one setback and they'll say things, I'm right back where I started, I've learned nothing. Nothing could be further from the truth, but that kind of thinking, this dichotomous, I'm a success or I'm a failure, I'm on plan or I'm off plan, um, this food is a good food or a bad food, that kind of extreme thinking uh, is very clear, leads to unhelpful patterns and unhelpful behaviors. I found it interesting to say to hear you say that we should look at mindset as having two different parts. Number one, how you think about yourself. And number two, how you think about the journey you're on. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think the, the latter about how you think about the journey may be more uh, common and accessible to folks, but but maybe not. It's really how you think about setting goals in the journey to the degree to which they're realistic or unrealistic. Some of the things we were just talking about, about small goals, big goals, but a big one has to do with how you deal with setbacks. Um, and that's an inevitable part of the journey. It's not a matter if I have a setback, everyone has setbacks. And not just when it comes to weight, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to work performance, when it comes to uh, parenting behavior, no one's perfect. We all have off days or days in which things don't go as we plan. So thinking about the journey has to do largely with how you might approach setbacks. So that would be things like, okay, first, I'm going to expect setbacks. And then I'm going to recover from them quickly. And I'm not going to overcompensate. I'm not going to, because I ate more than I intended last night, I'm not going to starve myself till noon the next day. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing. And then finally, I'm going to learn from those setbacks. So that's one sort of deeper dive into how you think about the journey. I think the thing that in the context of weight loss, which is often engaged in by people, uh, many of whom who have uh, carried weight for some years, the discrimination for people who have overweight and obesity is quite significant. And unfortunately, in our own research has shown this, uh, many people internalize these mistaken beliefs that your weight is your worth, um, that you can't be liked or loved. A lot of societal nonsense. This has been disproportionately, uh, the, the burden has been, this been disproportionately shared by women affects how people with overweight and obesity view themselves. So that's a, a, a lengthy preamble into saying how you think about yourself in this journey is so critical. And here's where we leverage the science of positive psychology. So things like self-compassion, things like treating your body with value and respect and dignity, no matter what the number on the scale says, no matter what society tells you how you should look like, building upon strengths rather than weaknesses. So really viewing the weight management process as something you're doing for yourself. It's actually a gift to yourself to treat your body with reverence and respect and attend to how you eat and how you move and how you think rather than going to dieters prison because you've, quote, done something wrong. So that last piece about how you think about yourself is so important in a group who's been so significantly discriminated. And those kind of thoughts can be activated when you're not having a great day or week or month. How can we deal with jealousy around seeing people who seem to have it just easy? They're naturally thin and they eat a lot, or we're in a group with other people who are trying to lose weight and they're losing weight and we're not. And it seems like we're doing the same things. 
I think one is just to cut yourself some slack in terms of, you know, comparisons never really work out that well, right? Some people will appear to be more fortunate or less fortunate. And I think in some ways, it's just a, a very dicey proposition. There's a, when I think about it from a, a body image perspective, often um, there's a, a cognitive error that uh, Tom Cash writes about, who's a famous psychologist in the body image area. And he lists a, 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 a he uh, has a list of things that people do that create negative body image. And one of the things he says to your question is this unfair to compare. And he says, and I've seen this in my own clinical experience working with patients, is that if people are in the mall or in some social situation, let's say a party, um, and they're feeling bad about some part of their body, whether it's their hips, their knees, their ankles, their elbows, whatever it is. When they compare themselves to other people, they compare just on that facet of their body. And of course, you're going to lose there because you're always looking at what you think is your most undesirable asset. So it's a way of saying the comparison thing, although it's part of human nature and we always want to, how are we stacking up compared to others? It's really not a useful strategy because we go into it with a lot of bias. I would also say that there is some a, a lot of scientific reality that people who eat the same and who exercise the same don't weigh the same. So don't expect that somebody with a, gen, a different genetic background will eat the same and move the same as you and weigh the same. So it's not a level playing field. That doesn't mean, oh, it's all in my genes. I can't do anything about it. Within a certain genetic predisposition, the environment that is how you eat, how you move, and how you think can change your body weight. But it's not like, you know, people can magically all get to the same number, whatever that magic number is, if it's 150, 180, 130, just by sheer eating and activity. It's not a level playing field. One of the things you encourage people to do is to build helpful thinking styles. And I'm wondering how can we identify unhelpful thinking styles that we might have. Can you give us some examples? Sure. I think one of the cues to, to look at um, is when you're not feeling well. So when you're feeling discouraged or disappointed, that's sort of the, the end of the path. And the question would be, because what you think determines how you feel. So if you're feeling disappointed, you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling hopeless, Go just back a little bit and ask yourself, what are you saying to yourself? You're likely saying things like, I've blown it. Here I go again. I'll never be able to do this. Other people have it easier. And really to look at what the, the technique we talk in the book a lot about is called a reality check. So do a reality check on those irrational thoughts or what I like to describe as unhelpful thinking styles. And to say, is it really true that, you, that you've blown it, that you're right back where you started? Probably not. And there, there's two ways to do a reality check. One is to say, if the same exact thing happened to a friend and they gave this example to me, for example, that uh, I had a really good week. I ate on plan. I felt I was doing healthy stuff. I was moving and I got on the scale when it went up two pounds. Would you say to your friend, you've blown it? Would you say give up? Or would you say the scale is not a great measure and you're making lots of nice changes? And importantly, a good friend doesn't sugarcoat things. They say things that are realistic. 
and factual, but still with a, a great degree of compassion. So that's one way to do a reality check. So identify these thoughts. And you can do that by when you're not feeling so great, ask yourself what you're thinking. One is to think about, okay, can I readjust my thinking here based on what I might say to someone else, particularly a friend? The other is to take a more adversarial approach, like a, a lawyer might in a courtroom, and to say things to you, to your thoughts, to say, what's the evidence to support that? What is the evidence that I've blown it? Have I really blown it? What's the evidence that I'm right back where I started? What's the evidence that I'll never be able to do that? And that kind of interrogation, self-interrogation for some can, can break people out of this pattern. We've all heard that it takes 21 days to form a habit. And you've got people who think to themselves, okay, if I can only eat healthy for 21 days or exercise for 21 days, then it'll all be easy. Then it'll all be automatic. So I thought it was really interesting that you write that that's just a myth. And in reality, there's actually no set amount of time that it can take for us to change these eating and wellness habits. So for people who hear that and feel discouraged, what would you tell them to encourage them to keep going, even if it's taking longer? And would you tell them that their behavior will ever actually feel like a habit or will it always be something that they need to think about? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I'm glad you're debunking this idea that it's 21 days. Um, it, it's just not. And some it will be sooner than that. For many, it will be much later. So the, the reason we spend a second on why that is, the reason is because behaviors are determined by a couple of things. One is the strength of the cue or the trigger that gets you to do the behavior. And then the other is the power and the immediacy of the reinforcement. So when you think about brushing your teeth at night, it's an ingrained habit. Nobody says, should I brush my teeth before I go to bed? It's part of a bedtime routine. And if you disrupt that routine, the likelihood that you brush your teeth, because it's a habit will probably persist, but it'll be disrupted. So as much as you get, uh, whether it comes to eating, activity, toothbrushing, getting to work on time, showing up on time, those are all habits. And it's really getting them into this pattern or a routine that takes away the thinking. It's not should I or shouldn't I. It just sets up your environment in a way in which it happens. And depending how complex that behavior is and the strength of those cues and reinforcements, it could take shorter or longer. I don't see that as discouraging. What it says is, in fact, you can engineer your environment. You can set up some triggers that will make that behavior easier to become automatic. And the good news is that the longer you do it, the easier it becomes. We have a, a success registry uh, of nearly 20,000 Weight Watchers members um, who have been enrolled in our program for various degrees of time, but we followed them over time and they've maintained over a 50 pound weight loss now for over three years. And one of the things that they report is that it in fact does indeed become easier. There's less thought. Now, again, it doesn't mean it's an easy course or it's effortless, but don't think that it's as it's going to be as difficult to change your behavior in, let's say, day 100 as it is in day one. Because in day one, the behaviors are fresher, you're disrupting routines, you're disrupting unhealthy routines and building healthy routines. So the, the good news is that it does get easier over time. Uh, and the way to do that is to incorporate it into things that you do already. I know that you're the author of over 250 scientific publications on the psychology causes and treatment of obesity. And I'm wondering 
whether there is anything really new and exciting in the field uh, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I think there's a few things that are exciting. One is I think this increasing attention to mindset that for a while, I would say for most of the time I've been in the field, people are all about, you know, it's all about the diet. Is it high carb, low carb, high protein? Uh, is it the time of day that you eat? A lot of, uh, I would say, minutia or detail that doesn't substantially affect people's weight loss journey. And I would argue that those kind of restrictions, rather it's based on time or the type of foods you have, may be orienting for a few days or a few weeks or maybe on the outside a few months, but it won't last. What is new is this emphasis on how you think about the journey. And the reason it's new, it gives people an unlock. It gives people a way to think about the journey in a different way. And I can't stress how important this notion is. If you view dieting as making up for past sins or transgressions, or as I said, or going to dieters prison to make up for some debt or wrongdoing you think that you've done, that by definition is a journey that will be painful, depriving, and short-lived. If instead your mindset is, this is a gift I want to give to myself. I want to use this opportunity to make myself important and treat myself with the value and respect that I deserve. And because it's tough to like yourself without liking your body, how can I think about fundamentally starting the journey saying that I am worth taking care of right now as is at this millisecond? So I think that's a big revolution for the field and one that I don't think is getting enough attention, that how we think is just as important as what we eat. I think the second advance is the advances in medications to treat obesity. Um, there have been medications you know, as long back uh, 1959 approved by the FDA, but recently there's a class of medications that are getting quite significant weight loss, 15% or so, and then another uh, medication that's not yet approved, but likely will be, um, that's getting nearly 20% weight loss. Um, and so that's a really exciting advance. And it addresses what we said earlier around the biology of body weight regulation. So for some people that the medications will be able to help on the biological side, while programs like ours help on the behavioral side. So I look forward in my role at Weight Watchers of being able to say, how do we take these new pharmacologic agents, uh, the best of those pharmacologic agents that address biology, and then the best of behavioral programs like ours to really help members not only lose weight, to keep it off. More to come on those meds. They're early in the game. There's, there's other issues around them in terms of accessibility and cost, but the science is very strong there. And I'm optimistic that uh, over the next few years, we're going to see some continued breakthroughs in that area, and especially how behavioral and biological treatments can work together. What techniques do you have for enlisting support and having it be effective? I know Weight Watchers is obviously a big one, but I think there are some people maybe in my generation that aren't really as familiar with it as, as those in my, my mom's generation. Yeah, I think one of the powerful things about Weight Watchers is our sense of community. We, we were founded nearly 60 years ago uh, by Jean Neidich, who was a, a trailblazing female entrepreneur 
uh, of her time and uh, a remarkable story that we don't have the time to get into here. But she basically, in short, used a science-based diet from the New York City Department of Health, had the fundamental fundamental realization that it's easier to do this journey with others than herself. She started with close family and friends and it expanded to an international uh, program that Weight Watchers is today. What we've done, uh, we certainly kept that face-to-face in-person community um, through a variety of different uh, locations uh, throughout the US and the globe. But we've also modernized things so that that community is accessible uh, through digital uh, uh, methods. So whether it's virtual workshops, whether it's the, we have a, a members only called a connect community where there's lots of different affinity groups, people who are uh, postpartum moms, people who are, live in a certain area, people who are stress eaters, people with certain medical conditions, just to get this sense of community. And it's it's very motivating to go on there on a daily basis and just to see how much people are helping each other. They do the very thing we talked about earlier in our conversation around how do you correct these irrational or unhelpful thoughts? And the, the power of community is, is palpable and it really makes a big difference. So I, I think it's a distinguishing feature of what we do. And it's also a really central tenet to how, to how to have a successful weight loss journey. If you want to take it to a more individual level, I think there are a couple key things that for people in your uh, very near environment, people you live with particularly, there are a couple steps that can be helpful to get social support. One is to clearly define what you need to be successful. And sometimes that is you'd like somebody to do something. I'd like you to do the dishes while I take a walk. I'd like you to help with childcare while I do some other things, whatever that is to be clear. Sometimes it's stuff you want people to stop doing. I don't appreciate it when you roll my eyes, when I when you roll your eyes when I order a dessert or I don't uh, like you asking, is that on your diet every time I pick up a piece of food? So it's really up to the person to decide what's helpful. And then to make that specific request is step two. I'd appreciate it on these days, these times that you do these things or stop doing these things. And finally, to give feedback, not thanks for being supportive or you're not being supportive, but thanks for not uh, making comments about my eating. It really helps me stay on plan as an example, or alternatively, if it's not happening, to give that specific feedback as well. So to your point, can't understate the importance of community, whether you're getting it in large numbers, like in programs like ours, or whether you're getting it at a very uh, near-term point of view in your own family and friends with whom you live. What are some of the psychological and emotional factors that we should know about and keep in mind that may lead us to eat more than we should or eat foods that aren't healthy? What are some of the triggers that we should be aware of? Yeah, I think the term psychological is pretty broad. And I want to be clear that, you know, uh, being overweight, having overweight or obesity is not a psychological condition. And there's good data that studies that that I've done and other people have done that have shown that people with obesity um, aren't psychologically disturbed. There are certainly people at extreme weights who have suffered a lot of discrimination, have some mood disorders, but it's not part of the condition per se. 
To your point, there are environmental factors that can trigger people to overeat. I would say a common one that we see a lot and is supported in the scientific literature is stress. Um, and you know, there's so much stress in our lives. COVID is a great example. There was a significant amount of weight gain during COVID. Um, and we saw in the short term that actually affected our program. It only lasted four or five weeks back in that March, April time. And then, you know, our program retained its efficacy. But it goes to this issue of routine. And once your routine is disrupted, it's going to make it more difficult to maintain healthy habits. Stress also causes us to think in irrational ways at times or automatic way. Like I deserve a break. I've had a rough day. So I'm going to have a second glass of wine instead of just one, or I'm going to have one glass of wine instead of none, or I'm going to have dessert with this mistaken notion that's somehow a way to treat yourself well. So stress um, is certainly one. And I think that the other thing that's very controllable and to you know, stress may or may not be controllable depending on the situation, um, is your own environment. So how the foods where you eat, where you work, especially with so many people working from home now and working remotely, look around where you're working, look around where you're walking throughout the day in your house. How many food cues do you see? Is food away in a cabinet? Is candy out on a counter? Cookies, crackers, whatever. So this is in the spirit of, you know, any food is on the menu, but if you're bumping into food on a regular basis, those kind of sights and smell of food can certainly be a trigger to eat more than you planned. Dr. Foster, at the end of each show, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what did nobody tell you about why mindset is so key to weight loss? And you've written a whole book about this, but something that you didn't know before you researched the book and you want to pass on to our listeners. I think the most surprising thing to me over the years and, and the reason for writing the book, and I wish somebody had told me this 30 years ago and I didn't discover it maybe, you know, 10 years ago, is that what's in your head is just as important as what's in your plate when it comes to long-term success. That people who are the most successful on the weight journey are not those who tracked everything they ate or lost weight every week or nailed every workout. It's the people who thought differently, who changed the way they think about themselves and about the journey. And doctor, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet and find out more about your work? Uh, Twitter uh, at Dr. Gary Foster is a great way to connect as well as our social media, uh, various social media outlets at Weight Watchers. So www.com and you can follow us on uh, www on Instagram, uh, Twitter, TikTok. Well, doctor, we really thank you for joining us. We could go for hours on this topic. I mean, Laura and I both have dozens more questions that (laughs) that we wanted to ask you. Not, Not enough time, but we really appreciate your joining us. It was great spending time with both of you. Thanks a lot. Again, our thanks to Dr. Gary Foster, whose new book is called The Shift, Seven Powerful Mindset Changes for Lasting Weight Loss. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.